give me that one again. You got to wait like five seconds. Give me another one. Sorry, it's the sound is all screwed up anyway. I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. It's uh, audio video video settings. Audio video. Audio video settings. Okay, here's the audio video settings. But it doesn't help. Hmm. What's it? Uh, what's it doing? Sounds weird in your cans. No, the it's not in the cans. It's coming. I you can hear me in the microphone. Uh-huh. I can only hear you through the computer machine. Internal machine mm-hmm. and uh, Skype yeah. system preferences yeah. doesn't really help. So I'm going to go to system preferences. Up in your in your menu bar, do you get the speaker icon? The speaker with the little waves coming out. Uh, it doesn't put it in my menu bar. Look for like where you would go to click to change the volume. Up there. there we go. There we go. There's a good shortcut. Uh, it, so, you know, if you option click on that speaker, it gives you, you can go straight to your inputs and outputs. Weirdly, there is no speaker up there. Ha! Huh. Maybe that's turned off. I don't know why that would be. I wouldn't have turned that off. You wouldn't do that. You run stock. Hmm. Yeah, I run stock. I'm not some fancy guy who's is like, this the oh, show? I don't have Is this the show? show? I think What's this might the be the show. the show. It starts when it starts and it ends when it ends. And whatever's not in the show is necessarily not in the show. That is something that I had a long... I, it took me a long time to figure that out. Oh, I'm still figuring it out, buddy. There was a lot of stuff I thought was in the show that wasn't in the show. Yeah, I make a lot of assumptions. I'm not going to lie. I have started to assume mm. that I can get up without an alarm in time for the show, now that we have moved the show back an hour. <laughs> uh-huh. Because uh-huh. I am very good. I don't know. This was, a, this was a thing I always wanted. This was a dream I had, that I would be one of those people that had an internal clock and, and wouldn't need clocks. Yeah. Would just, just know when things were. And uh, I do. I'm lucky. That I do. But when you're, when you're awake, you have like a pretty good sense of like 3, 3 no, p.m.-ness. No, no, no. I can lay down and say, I'm going to take a nine-minute nap. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. The people who say they can do that blow my mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, and it, it gradually came to me. It wasn't a thing I always had. It was a thing that, I don't know, I just trained or something. Hmm. But what happened today, you know, we recorded, we record a, sh- a show on the hour. And we have, we have I, for many years, our tradition, I believe, has been for, I want to say years, has yeah. been, we are scheduled to record Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific time. Correct. And then we recently, you know, in these challenging times, mm-hmm. said, well, who are we fooling? We're, we're both <laughs> sleeping later, going to bed later. Let's just, I'm moving everything out. Let's, let's, let's go at 11 instead, right? That's where we left it. That's right, because prior to the um, prior to the epidemic, there were just too many things to do in a day to start recording at eleven. It just you know 10. it burned a whole or I'm sorry at ten right, uh, and it and honestly the only show I recorded at eleven was with Dan Benjamin, and it was because Dan Benjamin has to have his lunch at a certain <laughs> hour. And when I would suggest that we record at a different hour, he would say, but how can, I ha- how can I do that? I won't be able to have lunch. And I would say, well, the way you would do it is move your lunch. Or... But he's, he says it like it's dialysis. Absolutely. absolutely. Right? How, would, have how would I do that if I can't get my medical lunch? How, how can I do it? I have to have lunch. It's noon. It's I a prescription lunch. lunch, yes. 
it's noon my time. I have to have lunch. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but it's like super inconvenient for me and wouldn't really be that inconvenient for you. And he says, well, yes, it would. It's right in the middle of lunch. lunch. So, and, and, and I speak as someone who has lunch at different times, sometimes doesn't have lunch. So yeah. I don't know what it's like to have lunch at noon every day. But now I see after, ye- as you say, years, I see the wisdom of Dan Benjamin. It's really better to start at 11 because I stay up so late. Yeah. I'm so tired. I'm so tired. Oh, you're so tired. You know what's funny? So it's something I've been realizing and talked about this with the You Look Nice Today guys is, you know, as we try to navigate our way into trying some new things, um, I was saying how I feel like this is just a gut check, but I feel like I do a better job doing different kinds of shows at different times of day, but I, I don't, mm. there's no internal or external logic to it. I, I, I do know that like, I do, I sometimes struggle, especially uh, now more than ever in these times with recording with Dan at eight thirty AM. It's just, Jeez. that's just, a, that's become in the last three months, just a skosh early for me. Yeah. But sometimes the results are really good because I start off the show, maybe a little more subdued and I can kind of like, dial it in but i i learned a long time ago i should not do too many podcast recordings at night and if i do them at night it's important that i not drink a lot and my shows got better oh, yeah. when i did that because yeah. well, it used to be with you look nice today we always recorded at night and so, we sometimes quite obviously had had some beverages <laughs> and i still <laughs> oh, have great. one sometimes but like that's that not professional early in podcasting you know that was we didn't when, know any who better. knew I know. Oh, we were young. I got up early today because like, they did the uh, they did. Oh, sorry, they uh, they're doing the Big Apple uh, developer conference today. So I was watching that. Was, uh, oh, right, right, like, right. Everybody's very excited. Oh, Marco so Arment right now, John. is jumping up and down, isn't he? He's uh, so are you are you tracking everything that's happening? It's wild. No, no, no. Because because my story is that I rolled over, stretched, all oh, looked at my clock, and it was ten fifty nine. <laughs> so much for that internal clock, eh? Well, no, I'd done it because I was supposed to get up at 11 or I was well, supposed to be you're supposed somewhere to at 11. At 11. And I got there. I got there at 10.59 and I was like, oh, no. And I picked up my phone. I texted you. Mm-hmm. And of all the people, of all the people I work with, Merlin, you yeah. are the absolute best at getting a text that says, can we go 15 minutes late? And you say. No problem, Bob. Sure. Sure. No I problem, I say no problem, Bob. Bob. Sure. 15 minutes. Now, every other person I work with, everybody in my family, the mayor's office, everybody, when I do that, they're like, ah, okay. Did they do this, John? Did they go, did they suck air? Did they go, yeah, uh, they're like, ah, okay. You know, know what like, the key part of that is, though? And I'm not trying to, as the NYPD says, I'm not trying to kettle you here. But I think the important part, and I do this, this is not you, this is anybody. When somebody says, including me, where somebody, like if I, if I have to go poop, and I could poop pretty quickly, but I know everything takes longer than you think. So whenever somebody says, oh, I'm running late or something, something, what, what do I always say? I say, first of all, I say, no problem, Bob. But then I say, let's just make it quarter after or let's Dude, make it half so past. Yeah. And, but you know, it's like when I was a kid, um, there was this park, state park in Florida uh, called Booker Creek. And it used to be, this is the first time I ever saw this, and now you see it all the time. It's so interesting. They had um, all of their speed limits in the park were unusual numbers. So, oh. like, for example, in this congested area, the parking um, 
the speed limit rather would be something like nine miles per hour. Oh, that's so good. So yeah. So tell me why that's good. Cause I have a thought. Oh, 19 miles an hour. Cause you, just you're noticing, like- right? You don't, when you see a zero and that could be anything, but if you're specific with somebody, like it, it, yeah. it undoes our <sighs> somnambulant approach to time. If you say this, yeah. my friend Dennis used to do this all the time. He said, Hey, listen, the movie starts at seven 30. Why don't we plan to leave here at uh six 56? So good. Isn't it? I mean, so, I, I mean, six, maybe six, it's six. dumb, but I think it kind of works. It does. Well, you know, I set every clock in my house and in my life slightly differently from every other clock. <laughs> so if you're in my you're life. You're not doing a Vince Lombardi. You're doing more like a time Loki. You're like an agent yeah. of your own chaos. In my house, the microwave is set, let's say, seven minutes fast. Yeah, the co- the the uh, the the um, to the clock in my car is about twelve minutes fast. The uh, the like old clock on the mantle can sometimes be fifteen minutes fast. They're all a little fast, but they're different amounts of fast. And when I realized that I could change the the uh, change the time on my Apple Watch. I set that a little bit off too, sometimes as much as 11 minutes fast. So that not only are all my clocks fast, so I always feel like I'm, uh, I'm almost late to something, which I, which I am. <laughs> I also don't know how late I am. So I can never look at a clock and say, oh, I got 10 more minutes than that because it's 10 minutes fast. It's always like, oh, oh, I don't really know how fat, how much faster that is. So I better get going. I'm still right. late, to, but well, I learned about yeah. Well, I learned about speed limit signs, an interesting thing, hmm. because like most people, speed limit signs a long time ago went from kind of being just a suggestion to being um, like a sign about what the cops up ahead might think is the speed limit to being uh, just a sign that I look through. You know, it's just, just it's just a thing that's that's blocking my view. You're saying, saying it, it went from a thing that you would uh, doggedly pursue to make sure you get it right to, to where now it might as well be a like a billboard for a personal injury attorney. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, And yet when I started going on these motorcycle trips, and when I say these, I mean... Two. I've been on two motorcycle trips. Two more than me. But I realized that this, because on a motorcycle, of course, you're having a super different experience of everything. The every aspect of being on a, on just a normal road is completely heightened and exploded by being on a motorcycle. Right. Um, but as you but on a motorcycle, one of the things, and I'm, and I'm on these big displacement motorcycles, which feel like they're too much motorcycle for me anyway. And so as you initiate a turn, at least at least on these trips that I'm on, as, as I initiate any turn, just, just a gradual turn on a country road, I am, I am at least 30% of my brain is consumed with the fear that I'm going to do it wrong and I'm going to crash and die. And so, you know, you go into these turns and you're like, 
your mind is so focused, just like, and now I'm initiating the turn, and now I have begun the turn, and now I am in the you really, turn. You really have to be so in the moment and yet relaxed. It's, it seems like a very kind of um, almost a martial arts approach because there's so much less fault tolerance, right? You have so so much, so many fewer cubic inches touching the road at a given time and things that a, a car could just kind of bump over could really send you ass over a tea kettle, right? It's that, but also in a car, if I, if I have the, if I overshoot a turn or if some, you know, if there's a goat in the road or something <laughs> and I, uh, you know, goat in the road is the road. something you have, ah, ah. <laughs> well, especially in Oregon, right? Oh, right. I mean, every, everywhere you go, it's just like, ugh, goat in the road. <laughs> uh, but if you, if you slam on the brakes in a car and the car goes into a skid, I know what that's going to do. I know how to recover from a skid in, in a car. I know how to take evasive action in a car. I know how to, you know, I can do all kinds of things in a car because I know what I'm doing. But on a motorcycle, it's not just the risk of doing it wrong. It's then also not knowing how to recover, not knowing how to recover from a skid on a motorcycle, not knowing how to take evasive action on a motorcycle. Because I'm in this this state of just like I am barely hanging on to this, you know, I've got my fingernails on the edge of the cliff at all times because I'm only just able to, and it's the fear of, I mean, I'm and I'm 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 overstating it. Like I've ridden two wheeled vehicles my whole life, motor motor vehicles, but you know, not these big things, not at these speeds, not in these conditions, right? A Vespa. If I'm if I come around a corner and there's a goat in the road and I'm on my Vespa, I do know what to do. But it's but I'm not going 75 That's miles of the, an hour. Okay, it's because of the speed where you're already driving more conservatively. You probably don't even have the same like quality. You're not going to go as fast, and you probably the, right. I'm guessing the brakes aren't as good as on like a full no. big boy motorcycle. It's completely completely different, mm -hmm. right? I'm not. I mean, you know, a, a Vespa does not weigh 2,500 pounds, or whatever sure. these big things are. Yeah. And also, like a Vespa, I mean, you if in a pinch, you could just step off of a Vespa and let it hit the goat. And you, you know, <laughs> you tumble in the ditch. You can't do that with these big things. Yeah. Anyway, what I started to notice was that the speed limit signs are absolutely 100% tied to the road. They are... The, the, the way that the corners are structured, the way they're built, the way they're banked, the radius of them, the sight lines up ahead, what's coming up on the corner, you know, uh, up ahead of the one you're on, all of those things are taken into consideration and reflected in the speed limit signs. And I, and it blew my mind that they're not just that they're not arbitrary, but they're not based on one simple formula. It's not like, oh, well, this is right. a 30 mile an hour. Because it has to, also has to take so many different kinds of things, like obviously things like uh, the curve of the road, the visibility, um, the likelihood of a side street unloading unvisibly. And you know what I mean? Like, a, a, like you wouldn't oh. see somebody pulling out of a driveway. Uh, obviously, if you're driving around, you know, um, in Northern California and going up some of those crazy hills in Redwood country, that's going to be different, but you also have to account for like, you know, it's like when you do risk, um, risk management and, uh, and, and trying to guess the, 
how to keep an area safe. You model for a an adult, you model for a worker, you model for a child, and you model for a trespasser. Because the trespasser is like, what if somebody, you know, came into this area and like waded into this water for 20 minutes, you have to model like what kind of exposure would they get? Isn't that kind of part of it is like, again, with that mountain road, it could be a bike, it could be a small truck, it could certainly be a car. And all of that has to feed into that. And isn't it, let me, isn't there a rule of thumb about 10, maybe I'm thinking of those, remember those old shell ads? About mm-hmm. counting two seconds, you know, mm-hmm. behind. Uh, keep your car ahead of you. Yeah. Yeah. And then wasn't there some rule of thumb about going so many car lengths per so many tens of miles per hour and stuff like that? Doesn't that also factor into it? Like, is this going to, are you coming up on a stop sign? Are you going to be yes. moving from, we want to kind of ramp you down from a highway to moving through this small town, that kind of yes. stuff. Well, and also the the degree to which the road is banked. You know, there mm-hmm. there are there are banked corners, there are flat corners, there are corners in between. You know, um, but all of this, as you're riding as you're riding these roads, for me at least, this this like gradual dawning appreciation for engineers mm-hmm. and the the fact that I mean, if you if you spend any time on roads with your eyes open, you're going to eventually realize, wow, this is engineered everything about it. You know, the, the, and engineers had to come into this environment and make this. And that is incredible what they've done, the things they've calculated into it, the, the, the things that they built, you know, that, that seem like, Oh, they just piled up some dirt and paved it. And it's like, Oh my God, no, you know, there are so many, Bridges and culverts and stuff that you don't even notice, but also like you can't just pour dirt in a wetland and build a road on it. You know, it's like, but not unless you're in the south. In the south, you (laughs) just throw a bunch of dead mules in there and pave it. (laughs) This episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you by Squarespace. You can learn more about Squarespace right now by visiting squarespace.com/supertrain. There are so many things that you can do with Squarespace. Primarily, you're going to create a beautiful website to turn your cool idea into your own little place right on the internet. You can showcase your work. You can create a blog or publish other kinds of content. You can have galleries. You can sell products and services of all kinds. You can promote your physical or online business. You can announce an upcoming event or a special project. Whatever it is you want to do, you drag, you drop. It's a site. It's Squarespace. Squarespace does this by giving you beautiful templates created by world-class designers, powerful e-commerce functionality that lets you sell anything online. You get the ability to customize the look and feel, settings and products, all of that and more with just a few clicks. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box, and they offer a new way to buy domains where you can choose from over 200 domain name extensions. They have analytics that help you grow in real time, built-in search engine optimization, free and secure hosting with nothing to patch or upgrade ever. And of course, you get their 24 by 7 award-winning customer support. Squarespace is encouraging folks to make it. Make it yourself. Easily create a beautiful website all by yourself. As you might know, I am a longtime fan of Squarespace. And uh, in some ways, I imagine so are you because you are using Squarespace right now. I assume that you're listening to the Roderick on the Line podcast, which is and has always been hosted exclusively on Squarespace. It's also where I uh, put my personal sites. Big fan. They get my official thumbs up and 
Okie dokie. So please, right now you go head out, go to squarespace.com slash supertrain for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code supertrain to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace.com slash supertrain, offer code supertrain for 10% off. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Roderick on the line and all the great shows. Oh no, my goat. <laughs> <laughs> and goats, dead goats. The, the, it's, you know how hit. like you know how like the marina district is all built on like garbage and shipwrecks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's true <laughs> here in Seattle too. The the whole Soto area, it's just like it's like old bottles, dead horses, um, like Indian canoes. They just put everything that that they thought didn't have any value. All these you know yes. all these canoes that now would be in museums around the world. <laughs> So anyway, and and the thing about the motorcycling is um, I was always exactly 10 miles over the posted speed limit because the motorcycle, because the speed limit is conservative, but also it, it, you know, the motorcycle is agile, but I never was 12 miles over it. It was, you know, it was between eight and 10 miles over it. I was fine. And it felt like exactly the right tempo but if i went a little bit over it you know i could just i I would just feel that i was going too fast and that i was that it was dangerous and that the fact that those speed limit signs and even though they were just in increments of 5 20 25 30 35 they they had been calibrated a lot more carefully than i thought Mm -hmm. and so when i think about speed limit signs that say 19 miles an hour or 29 miles an hour that just feels that just that feels hilarious to me, but mm-hmm. it also it would I think shock me into thinking that those speed limit signs or it's shock me into realizing that those speed limit signs actually reflected a calculation mm-hmm. rather than just um you know they, they they got a cardboard box full of signs and they're reaching in there like give me a thirty five well thirty's right. fine um so yeah I'm I'm like super fan. I remember um, the single probably best piece of advice I heard about appreciating Shakespeare um, is pretty obvious, which is, you know, if it's a play, see it performed as a play. You know, if it's if it's a poem or like a sonnet, hear it read aloud. And I would say the second best was that if you in the absence of getting to see a performance of one of the plays, if you're stuck just reading it like a monster, uh, I think I didn't learn this till college. But I remember hearing that it's really important to read Shakespeare, uh, you will discover a speed at which to read Shakespeare that will be mm-hmm. most sort of meaningful and you'll be able to get the most from it. You won't get everything from it, but mm-hmm. if you read it too slow and you really like pour over every syllable, you're going to get so hung up on stuff that you don't know, mm-hmm. right? You're just going to, it's not going to be fun. And if you read it too fast, you're just simply not going to get any of it. You know what I mean? There's a velocity that feels good. And I think that's true for a lot of stuff in life. I feel like this does apply on highways. So everybody knows that a highway has, like a U.S. highway has a maximum speed limit, but I believe there's also an implicit minimum speed limit. Like you're not Mm. supposed to be going 15 on a highway because that's not safe. You know, it's the people we said this probably since the beginning of this program. People need to get out of your way so you can get through Seattle. But also, like the there is a community velocity 
to being on the road that lets everybody make smarter decisions. It's, it's Again, it's why, for example, at a four-way stop, you not only should wait for your turn, but you must take your turn with confidence. Because if you don't take your turn when it's your turn, it's very confusing to everybody else at the, at the at their stop sign. You know what yeah. I mean? Like well, your abundance well, of caution is making it less safe. We can't have roundabouts in the United States because nobody can figure it out. People stop. Oh, I love freak out. I love a traffic circle. I love it so much. Did you know that the minimum speed limit on a freeway is 45 miles an hour? I would have guessed 40. I believe 40. Yeah. 45 is, that's pretty high, really. Yeah, well, get off the interstate if it seems high to you. Hey. Wiener. Easy, Tex. <laughs> I'm just as God made me, sir. <laughs> you turkey. <laughs> got the old that cruise back. control set on 40 miles an hour, uh, son. Uh-huh. And like, yeah, yeah you know what, son? We got to get away. We, we, we don't want to rehash the whole driving no. issue. But no, 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 appreciation no, no. for engineering is, I don't know, it is it is pretty wild. You know, if you were the sort of person who listened to podcasts, and I know that you're not, there's one I would really recommend to you. Oh, I was up all late last night listening to podcasts. You love your podcast. Don't talk to me before I've had my podcast. That's right. Um, this guy, uh, an English guy called Tim Harford, who is a, a, an interesting turns out guy, has a wonderful podcast mm-hmm. called Cautionary Tales. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the log line is, my podcast telling true stories about mistakes and what we should learn from them. Mm-hmm. And so I might have mentioned this to you before, but he it's a it's it's a very, very good show where whether this whether it's Chernobyl or whether it is uh a World War One civilian pretending to be a German officer, or whether it's the waiter at the Beverly Hills Supper Club trying to get people out. There's all of these things that we can learn from giant disasters about the small disasters, smaller disasters. And this week's episode, right. I don't know, I, I, um, it's called A Tsunami of uh, Misery. And it's uh, so here's the uh, log line for this saving people from an urgent threat can cause their lives to be blighted in profound yet hidden ways. And so it's basically about deciding after the tsunamis they've had in Japan, how big of a seawall will they need to make to prevent against a tsunami hitting the Fu- Fukushima plant? Yes, yes. And like all the estimates that go into that. And it's, I love the. I love hearing how people think about these things. And I love, I love the obvious. I love the unobvious. I love all the things that go into like, yeah, but did we account for this? The classic, um, certainly apocryphal tale. Please don't email me. But the apocryphal tale, <laughs> it's the frog and boiling water of architecture. Hmm. Yeah. The one about like uh, the grand opening for the beautiful all glass library before they brought the books in, they're going to have this cocktail party to to like say, hey, you know, this is done all over but the shouting. And one of the people says to the architect in this apocryphal story, I can't believe you were able to make this beautiful glass building and it'll still be able to hold all of those tons and tons and tons of books. Now, in the apocryphal he said- story, he goes, whoopsie. <laughs> Books? <laughs> I should have accounted for that. Well, that's a, certainly an apocryphal story, but I'll bet you stuff like that happens all the time, especially when you're working by yourself. Because there's nobody there to like pair with you and like push back on overly ambitious, often cost-cutting measures. So now you get stuff like in Florida. There's this bridge in Stewart that's about to just fall down. <laughs> there's, it's, I think it's still operating, but like those cracks add up and like you you have to model for so many different things and you got to think about, well, this kind of car, when we, when this car gets sold in Massachusetts, we have to account for the fact that there's going to be ice and there's going to be re- salt to get rid of the ice 
do we do something to all of our cars nationally because they will be affected, especially, you know what I'm saying? It's like mm. you have to walk through so many different things and there's always limitations. There's always budgets and deadlines. And what an exhilarating and difficult job being an engineer must be. It, it, and I, <clears throat> hmm. Hmm. I hate to always be uh, hmm. the one that, yeah, that's right, that, um, <laughs> Uh, that that uh, that ties that into the social sciences, but you know we talk a lot about how uh, design by committee creates problems because the 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 sometimes the solution to what you're describing, which is an some uh, uh, an architect working apocryphally, um, ends up not you know not having thought it through, and so we need to get other people in the room. But then the 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 problem with that is you get too many people in the room, and there's a guy from uh, ZimTech and there's a guy from Zimco and, and it starts to be like, well, we oh, can't yeah. afford that. And pretty soon somebody says, well, what about this is an ADA compliant. And then another person says, well, what, you know, what if we wanted to turn this into a hovercraft and then it becomes <laughs> the, the design falls apart. The problem in the social sciences is that there's very little collaboration often. And so what you get is these, these engineered, theories but there is no oversight or there's no there's no uh, there's nobody saying now wait a minute shouldn't we add in uh, a factor for the fact that there are no sight lines on this corner like yeah the the way this corner is banked you could you could do it at 45 miles an hour but there's an intersection right around the corner and you can't see it so we need mm-hmm. to slow the traffic down and if you're if you're coming up with a theory of how human beings interact with each other or how government works or you know like the stuff that comes out of universities and think tanks that oftentimes we make public policy based on a theory that someone publishes and that gets republished and people talk about. Yeah. But there isn't a process of – there's not enough of a process of vetting and testing those theories anymore before people start making policy about them. And now increasingly that all social policy is made on the internet in a split second, there isn't even a sense – that those things that there, that there should be any engineering behind a theory other than that somebody said it somebody somebody that you trust published it or even reposted it yeah reposted it without comment and that trying to find the right blend not just in engineering but in every other kind of what we used to think of as the world of expertise the right blend of let's not just trust this one person who is a who's a mad genius or who's working in isolation. We need other human eyes on this and we need collaboration. But also let's not let it get bogged down in a bureaucratic process where people are in the room that don't belong there or where we're trying to serve too many masters. Uh-huh. Like to find the perfect like if you and I had a third person on this show. Oh boy. We tried it one time. Do you remember? Do you remember the one time we tried it? Oh, yeah. We had an idea that we were going to expand our franchise a little bit by talking yeah. to people who are ongoing characters on the show. Right. We, we were going to we because I, I didn't want the work, and I had a feeling it would be right. harder than it seemed. And we tried it once, and that turned out to be true. <laughs> We had we had one attempt at right. having one of our uh, one of our many favorite uh, characters come on the show and be himself, and he's much much worse in person than we make him out to be. Yeah, and that show had to. And it's kind of like the show that we tried to do, you, me, and Circusa. Circusa, yeah, Circusa, where it was just like, 
we got on the show and he yelled at me about evolution for an and hour. And skiing. And so what do you what do you think it would mean if we had a third? You think if we get we get a third, like a permanent third person and they no, come in and no, keep no. us honest? I'm saying that's the problem. It mm. couldn't happen. It mm-hmm. couldn't happen. There's a different a show. It'd be a very different show. Yeah. There's not room in this in this world for a third between you and me. There's not oxygen in the room and we're not even in the same room. Hmm. Whoa. There's not oxygen in the virtual room. We'd need an engineer just to put just to pump oxygen into that space for this third person to survive. Yeah, I don't need another person in my life telling me what I'm doing wrong. I get enough of that from <laughs> Syracuse and my family and everyone else. Um, I'm trying to remember. I'm getting that weird feeling that not only have we talked about this, like all topics, but I feel like we might have gotten in an argument about this, and I don't remember. But uh, I don't remember specifically. But you know about the replication crisis, in, especially in psychology. Like you, you, you put, you know about this. That like, there's all kinds of things that have. There are certain kinds of studies that are like just tentpole studies that people are still quoting to this day, and like almost every single one of them has something wrong with it that we didn't discover for a pretty long time. It could be like the Stanford Prison Experiment, you know, or the the, the specific one with the the shocking people one, like that's yeah. very kind of unethical. The monkeys with the bananas. The monkeys you got the with rat the, over here. Well, you got this guy, no soup. But what I was gonna yeah. see. So the other day, in one of my fe- like late afternoon uh, fever dreams about how scared I am about Corona, is I wanted to. I was searching for you know me. I love an analogy, and I was searching mm-hmm. for the an analogy that suits my feeling uh, that we're going through a, a large experiment right now. I mean, one theme in my thinking about Corona, such as it is, is that every time somebody tries to talk about anything beyond a very small area with very recent data, it's bullshit. It's on, this is, it is only useful if we are extremely specific about extreme, you know, within a margin of the margin of error that we know. But, you know, it doesn't mix. Like I said yesterday on the Internet, it's fucking I mean, having na- uh, national covid numbers is like having a national weather forecast. Like mm-hmm. I would not want to use that to make a decision about where I live, how I live, where I live. Mm-hmm. But I was struggling with how do we how do we say this? Well, like I, my feeling all along has been like, guys, we're never going to get. Well, first of all, there's no normal to return to. Let's just put that in the rearview mirror. But we're never going to get back to anything close to normal until we tamp this thing way the fuck down. Wear a goddamn mask down. and stay inside for three weeks, and this will go tamp it away. Down. Wear a mask, tamp it down. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, all this. All the problem is that everybody keeps going off half cocked, and we see what happens when that occurs. Mm-hmm. It's now even the national numbers are crazy right now. Anyway, I was I was saying like it reminded me of that. The very famous bit of turns out research, which is the marshmallow test. And the so marshmallow th- test. The marshmallow test. You hear about a lot in uh, behavioral economics and turns out reporting. And the notion mm-hmm. of that was we've discovered, I believe it was something from the 60s or 70s, that, that we <laughs> – there's every single bit of this is stupid in retrospect, but like we, we sat a kid down and said, I'm going to put this marshmallow in front of you, but if you cannot eat it oh, for five minutes, I'll give you two or whatever. Two marshmallows later. Yeah. And we talk like, about this all the time, even still. Yeah. And I feel like I'd heard that that was, well, maybe most importantly, there's some other less important things that I'll mention in a second, but most importantly, that that was a victim of the replication crisis uh, in that when they finally, after years of people quoting this, got around to many different people trying to replicate it, 
people tried to replicate it and did not get the same results. Now, I must also say in passing, there's all kinds of bullshit about grit tied up in that. And like, well, you know, it's like, uh, like my friends in college were much more okay with not having money than I was because they always had a fallback plan and a parent who could wire them money. You know what I'm saying? And so they seemed like they were handling adversity better, but they just had never had their ass kicked, right? More grit. They had grit. grit. Oh, grit is, oh, John, grit is so important. Isn't it funny how so many white kids have grit? Um, They did have grit. Right, and the other one just lacked the grit. But but that's that to me is so interesting, and there's a whole there's a whole field about this. I've mentioned there's this guy at Stanford who studies this exclusively with his group. He's one of the people who was very concerned about the uh, Elizabeth Holmes company. You know, he walked by on the Stanford campus one day and was like, hmm, I wonder what that's all about. But the replication crisis is so huge. What I'm trying to get at is that in terms of this, there is no like sort of rubric that's shared across all of the sciences for what we're trying to accomplish here. And we sometimes we don't even have the same teacher's edition that we're working out of. So, of course, it's going to be confusing when a city planner and like a civic engineer and a designer and a mayor, you know, you know, uh, start getting real. Well, and then you add in, you add in all those people and then you add in somebody who's expertise is in the realm of diversity, someone whose expertise is in the realm of of. um you know, how people interact with machines or, you know, you know what I mean? Like you I enter, you, you take all those people, you take all the engineers, put them in a room with politicians, but then you put them in the room with people, with social scientists. And there is absolutely no, <clears throat> no baseline where people are, you know, because they're not speaking the same language and there's no, and we don't make it, um, we don't make any attempt to have a common language anymore. In, in, even in even within university graduates, right? And and I think a lot of people think of themselves in one profession as the necessary corrective to another profession, right? Like my job is to be the one that keeps those people with hmm. that job in check, hmm. right? Like if it weren't for me and my job, if it weren't for my profession, those people would run amok. And... There's, there's like, that's kind of baked into, to America in a way. We think of the press as the thing that keeps government in check. We mm. think of the Supreme Court as the thing that keeps Congress in check, and both as keeping the presidency in check. Yeah, but checks, checks and balances, of, right? Checks and balances. Mm-hmm. But that that idea that like journalists <clears throat> keep X in check or. Engineers are the ones that keep city planners in check or, you know, an increasingly um, like a civilian review board is who's trying to keep the cops in check. And and all this like keeping in check is a job. But really, there's a really what you what you have is an actual job, right? The journalist's job isn't to keep government in check. It's a journalist has an actual job, which is to do journalism and keeping the government in check is a, um, is should be a byproduct of you actually doing a, a job, hmm. a good job, like keeping it, keeping the government in check should be the outcome of good reporting and keeping, um, keeping the, the Congress in check should be an outcome of the Supreme court, not its job. 
And that's true also of all the all the times that that social scientists and engineers interact. You know, but you see in the meetings, you see the way that people interact with each other, and they're just listening to the other person trying to find faults in their argument or trying to find the flaw in their plan. Like they think of their job as to be um, to be like a Snoopy, or, or like a devil's advocate almost. Well, or worse, mm-hmm. uh, what's the worst of? the the version of a devil's advocate that's that has no um oh you're just like being like ha- a gadfly <laughs> yeah a gadfly right that has yeah. no actual plan of their own that that feel like they're just there to um and you know a lot of those people are the ones that walk out of the meetings feeling like they really did their work today mm-hmm. because everything that the other person proposed they found a flaw with and shot down and I think that's a big part of meeting culture. I think it's a big part of corp- corporate culture now that that all you have to do in a meeting is shoot somebody else's ideas down. Right. You don't even have to come in with ideas. Because of this because of this mistaken notion that being uh the antidote or you know being the corrective that keeps someone else in check is like um is like God's work somehow because you know, boy, this guy over here with all these ideas, he didn't think about the fact that that uh, the toilet water flushes in the opposite direction in Australia. <laughs> it's like, oh, fuck, guy, really? I mean, that's the thing that just, now this meeting's unraveled and we're, we all have to go break out. And But isn't there and, some isn't there some role for um, I'm thinking about a term I learned when I was visiting. I want to yeah, I was in Madison. Um, my friend who's a professor there brought me into to talk and. The phrase that he uses in academia is problematizing, which yeah. sounds like you're just being an asshole. But it's, I think it's it's a idea in academia that well, think about this. Think about the uh, the weird thing a lot of people misunderstand, which is like when you hear something from the Supreme Court or any kind of an appeals court, you notice that sometimes there are certain judges and justices that ask surprisingly difficult questions of one side and not the other. And I think on first blush, people hear that and think, well, obviously they're going to rule against that person that they're asking the hard questions to. It's my understanding that it can often be something like the opposite of that, which is on the one hand, like I want to give you the opportunity as the person with the stronger case to make that case even stronger. And if your case mm-hmm. is really good, I'm also going to give you the ammunition to deal with the mm-hmm. uh, the appeal that will come out of this. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to push the person who has the better argument harder because they're, they can handle that. I'm going to problematize what you're asking and I'm going to push back. But, but would you contrast that with like just trying to dunk on somebody at a meeting? Well, it's the difference between being lazy and 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 wanting to. I mean, the, the desire to be to dunk on people at a meeting is to walk out of that meeting the hero, mm-hmm. right? The person, the engineer that's putting those those um, speed limit signs, the, whoever's job it is out on the Oregon public highways, to at the end of the process, when you know, and they've designed those roads with speed limits in mind, right? They're not. There's not some engineer that's just thrown up roads and then somebody that comes along behind and is with a tape measure and is like, well, I guess this is a 35 mile road. You know, they're like, they see it way ahead, but nobody, the person that put those signs in the ground or that calculated those speed limits and said, here, this is what we're, we're calling this. They don't get a medal, right? No one ever knows their name. They're not they're just they don't another bureaucrat. Am I right? Yeah. Right. You know, <laughs> it's a guy, it's a guy in a hard hat that when you're driving 
you know, some flagger has a slow sign and you drive by and you're like, God, why don't you guys get, and you pass 15 people in hard hats and you are here specifically to slow me down. Yeah. Right. (laughs) You're, you're, you people with your dumb road repair. You pass one of those people with a with a hard hat, and she's the one that designed the freaking thing, and standing there with a uh, with a clipboard. Yeah, no heroes in it, and I think probably the only heroism is at the end of a of thirty years of the Oregon Department of of Public Works. They give you a a certificate, you know, mm-hmm. like um, probably not even a gold watch anymore. Co- compared to somebody who's sitting in that meeting. Um, sitting in the meeting where the road is getting built up at city hall and saying, Oh, well, you know, we can't, uh, we can't have a road that comes around the corner there. No sight lines because whatever, you know, um, what, what's going to happen if a guy that's never been on a motorcycle before goes around that corner and didn't see the sign, Mm -hmm. you know, just, just throwing up that kind of what's going to happen if we're just trying to, trying to, trying to make a thing more complicated than it is trying to make a thing mm-hmm. fail, trying to make a good idea fail because watching not, not out of, not out of good faith. It's there's bad, a certain amount of like bad faith to it. Yeah. And a certain amount of laziness, a certain amount of unwillingness mm-hmm. to a, a certain amount of <clears throat> looking at somebody who has a hard job and making your job, wanting to make your job seem as hard as theirs, <laughs> you know, wanting to seem as much of an expert as they are. This yes. is an engineer who's who's building a road. I took, uh, you know, I studied political science, and my, you know, my thesis was on uh, the bonobos hmm. and how they like to jack one another off. Yeah, and so that means that you know my my feeling about this curve in the road is as good as yours. Hmm. And I know I'm putting myself in a position because I said it as I'm part of the commentariat yeah. on internet and computer and city planning and all that. I mean, I sit here on my squeaky chair and talk about things I'd have no expertise on. Um, but you know, I'm part of a commentariat, not part of a committee to, well, yeah, I, I was bitching the other day because I just, I don't know what it is. I feel like everybody, probably including me, but, but people who should know better have become so sloppy certainly in tweets, like, but like journalists were like, Oh God, I, my friend John Gruber and I talk about this, how we, how reluctant we are to, you know, reblog or retweet something that's got like a typo in it because you're like, mm-hmm. well, that makes me look bad if I do that. Right. But like, I've just right. been noticing more and more, like, especially in the Washington Post, where I feel like they are deliberately trying to make me insane because <laughs> there's, these are in like full on, sometimes opinion pieces, but you know, any piece that's in the Washington Post has been through I think several layers of editing. At, at, you got various, think. Well, yeah, but I mean, you got line editing. You've got the you got a first edit, a second edit. Like there's there's revisions and all that going through. And and plus, if you, but you'll see an error that's like, dude, my phone would have caught that. Like, and it's. I think I think that they've laid off all the. Uh, all those people with uh, green visors, all and black the green fruit. visors. But but you know, if yeah. it, if somebody were to say to me, "Well, yeah, well, you have typos all the time," you know, my response would be, "Yeah, but I'm not the Washington Post. Yeah. I'm not the president. Like we turn to these people because of that expertise that they have, and you know, maybe that's part of my problem in the commentary." It, I, John Dickerson said something the other day. Uh, he said, uh, was this two days ago, saying, "What's the term for only engaging with an argument by the worst act done on behalf of it?" 
And he claims mm. he was, there's a line that, uh, you know, just in looking at the way that we, I mean, oh, you can you can slice that thing a million different ways, but we see it all the time, where it's like mm-hmm. the, the most conceivable, outlandish, far-fetched corner case, this happened one time type of thing comes to define an entire argument or movement, right? right and right. the phrase he says uh, via, this, I think, Jonah, Jonah Goldberg from the Times, uh, mm-hmm. the term is nut picking. When you go and you specific, yeah, you go out and you try to go, you look straight past what the person is trying to say that is substantial and specific, Mm. and you make Mm. it weird and abstract and try to find one hypothetical, and you're like, ha ha, you, sir, will shrink up and call yourself a corn cob because you are pwned by me, (laughs) you know? That's kind of what we're talking about, right? Pwned, lol. I don't think i don't think about for instance you and you me and you and our dog named mm-hmm. Boo. Mm-hmm. i don't think when we when we comment and critique on the world as we see it that our that our goal is to tear it down or, or tear people of good faith down tear tear good things apart either for our own amusement or to or to make ourselves seem bigger than we are because we don't have a we don't really have a dog in that race right i mean at least at least on my part i spent a lot of time defending part parts of the american story or parts of the uh, parts of government that seem from the outside to be opaque and ill-mannered and um ill-intentioned and, you know, a lot, a lot of my journey in running for office was to say, like, you know what, <clears throat> this is actually – this seems like it is um, – this, this whole process seems like it's corrupted. But it's really uh, – it's really the effect of a bunch of – a combination of benign circumstances and a combination of well-meaning people who, with very good educations, trying to do the right thing, have created a structure – that none of them can extricate themselves from, you know, like, a, a this is not the, the reason that we don't have, um, like smooth paved roads in this part of, of Seattle is not because somebody at city hall wants you to have a bad day. Yeah. Right, because, right. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. <laughs> it's because yeah. of uh, like the taxing structure that was put in place by the legislature that, that doesn't allow the city to fund this kind of construction without there being a referendum that, so we're straight back to assumptions, aren't we? Like we talked well, about at the beginning, there's an assumption there of like always assuming some kind of conspiracy or ill will or that somebody's deliberately trying to fuck with you because your road is bad. And what's weird is as somebody who's against conspiracies mm-hmm. in general, against the concept, there's so much evidence right now of conspiracies, like like small scale panty ante conspiracies mm-hmm. just on the just this whole business with the fireworks where it's like oh god is this really is, it, there seems to be ample evidence that that this is really happening that that somehow huge crates of fireworks have been delivered to the inner cities of all of our great of all, of all the cities that stood up during black lives matter because it's like a war zone in these places oh, you, think it's, you think it's real you think it's happening well what what no, i no, don't no, I, know, I just i'm just curious yeah I mean, what I don't know is what I don't know. Yeah. But, but the, I know what it's like to have fireworks going off all night long. 
I saw one from Harlem last night that that show. It was three o'clock in the morning, and it was like a parade of cop cars going around the block with their sirens on, bumper to bumper, huh. in West Harlem at three, three o'clock in the morning. It, with no, I mean, they were they're just in a parade, literally in a parade. But it's it's very hard for me as somebody who's who's my whole life has looked at conspiracy and found that I was a person who, who believed that the simplest answer was probably the best. And the simplest answer is almost never that a secret tribe, a secret tribunal of Jews in Switzerland is running the banks. You know, like it seems like a simp- the simpler answer is probably that people largely of goodwill some of them motivated by greed have created a situation you know that the reagan administration deregulated the banks Mm -hmm. and some bankers saw an opportunity and they thought what they were doing was going to be good for the economy and it was it's just that um you know like a, a cascading set of of um of people trying mostly to do the right thing and thinking that yeah this is going to benefit me too has created a situation where it becomes an untenable uh, financial situation. It's not. It's not that capitalism is intrinsically um, bad as much as it is. Hey, if you take government regulation away, you're going to end up with an unregulated uh, industry, right? But now, how do I how do I come out and say they're like conspiracies are fake? Because there are so many of them. Like, well, I'm yeah. wa- every morning I wake up and I walk across the bones of the 50 conspiracies that were laid out on the internet just last night. And to say, to make a sweeping generalization that like, oh, there are no, come on, there's not, it's not like the cops are doing this. It's not like the, it's not like the cops have the brains to put a conspiracy together. Yeah. I mean, look at, look at how much worse things could be right now if, if even the, George W. Bush administration were pulling some of the shit that the Trump people are trying to pull. It's just they're so bad at it, and they they keep they keep failing um, at it. But it's another part of this, and this is way before we ever get to if you like privilege. But just in terms of like sort of an Occam's razor, or hmm, sorry, more like a cognitive bias. Let's put it that way. It's like we about don't. Evolution? It's a, <laughs> and skiing and cars. <laughs> we don't tend to over notice the things that are neutral or that benefit us. We, those mm. seem normal because we deserve it. What, sure. we, what we notice are the things that are not, the things that are damaging to us or the things that might become damaging to us. And I feel like that's where there's a lot of fertile ground as like for conspiracy thinking is like, there must be some explanation for why my life is the way it is. And now I just need to reverse engineer like who is out to get people like me. Right. And so of course right. it's the Jews or of course it's, you know, pff, the Italians or whoever, but don't you right. think isn't that part of it is like the, if you did an honest accounting of all the ways in which things have mostly gone pretty good for you, perhaps you might be less likely to think that there are cabals um, that are just because the truth is nobody cares about you. I mean, see, it's worse right. than them being out to get you. It's that they, you know, it's like Don Draper says. I, I, you know, I don't think of you at all. <laughs> right. Well, and the and the and the trick to that 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 actually nobody cares about you is when I think about my mom. At no point in her life did anyone ever tell her 
that things were fair. <laughs> oh wow! So she has yes. That's quite that's quite a different baseline, <laughs> right? Yeah, she has absolutely no expectation. No yep, yep. That yep. things will be fair, and if you say that's not fair to her, in a situation that she has control over, she will say, "I'm doing my best to make this fair," because I, primarily, because I don't want anyone to feel uh, that favoritism is playing a role. So in a situation with my sister and me in the, in the Christmas presents we got, she recognized that favoritism, which she had experienced as a kid. Mm -hmm. She was on the, she was on the um, receiving end of, of the wrong kind of favoritism. She watched favoritism as a deficit to her. So she's working to try and, and balance favoritism in, in things that she can. Mm -hmm. But she does that. She, you know, she, she's doing that because she recognizes the pain that favoritism causes mm -hmm. on the small scale. But in terms of like when she looks at life on a large scale, she feels like there is a decreasing ability from the, from the small scale, which is like, I'm going to cut this sandwich in half and I'm going to give half to you and half to you. Mm -hmm. And I have the power to play, place that knife somewhere and where I put that knife I can be careless or I can be careful and I'm going to try and be careful because I can control this. Mm -hmm. But as you expand outward from that to fairness in, in a school, for instance, where it's like, I've got 30 kids in my class and I want to be fair, but it's not like I can put a knife in the middle of a sandwich. I have to apportion out my time, my, my, uh, my intellectual and emotional resources among these 30 kids to try to make it as equal and equitable as I can, but how do you do that really? It's not, it's not as easy as cutting a sandwich. Because what right? everybody needs is different. Everybody needs is different. And you're one person and you have only X amount of training and you have only X number of, of texts and you can only know a kid so much. Yeah. And, but like, I mean, I, I, I feel like I've cited this on so many shows. I won't oversight it here, but I've seen a fair number of, let's just say, pithy sayings and graphics to explain some of the difference between, you know, um, equality and justice and all of those things. And it's often things like it involves a kid standing on a box to see over a fence or something like that. But I, you have to put it in terms that are that clear and relatively simple to say that, well, in the words of one of my kids' teachers, you know, um, fairness isn't everybody getting the same thing. It's people, everybody getting what they need to succeed, which is a damn sight more tricky than just saying everybody gets exactly one orange slice, regardless of how much food you've had in the last 24 hours. It's just right. that, I mean, if we want to move somewhere closer to a just society, the second part of that will be implementing that sort of fairness. But the first part of that is trying to convince these hogs and chuds that they are not losing out by other people having an opportunity to. And if they are losing out because people, other people are getting opportunities, they never deserve that opportunity in the first place, in my opinion. But that's something, it's again, it's go back straight back to these cognitive biases, go back to loss aversion. Just the idea that people, you know, people are much more worked up about losing a dollar than gaining a dollar and will do these kind of odd things to try and keep themselves safe and protected. And, you know, also John Heritage, you got to really think about our heritage and history. 
The thing about fairness, though, is that fairness is completely subjective, and it's very easy to to be wherever you are and feel like you have been treated unfairly, mm-hmm. and to project that backwards on systems, mm-hmm. right? It because if you trace it from like if you trace it from a school to then you know it's a teacher trying to to split their attention among 30 kids and then you realize there's there's 30 classes in this school and then you realize that this school is one of 30 schools in a school district mm-hmm. and that school district is one of 30 school districts in the state that's a lot of levels and at every level even if everybody is trying to be fair and trying to do a good job and is a good person and an honest person trying to do the best they can with what they have, if you take any product of that school district as an adult and sit them down in a chair and go, was it fair? <laughs> it's, it's extremely, it's so much easier for that person to say, no, I wasn't treated fairly. Hmm. And to build, in, in a lot of ways, a little castle in their heart about how they weren't treated fairly. Especially if they are either raised or or living in a culture as an adult where the currency is often like calculated in terms of fairness rather than in terms of and it, it, there are innumerable cases where you can say well this school got way more resources than that school i mean there's i'm not saying that there's no fairness yeah, but yeah. there's or there's no lack of fairness but but studying my mom who was raised with very little expectation that any aspect of society was going to be fair to her. And so when she got a good shake, when she, when she got a, a an even deal in places, um, it was never her expectation and she didn't really celebrate it either. It often was a thing that she had to accomplish for herself or it ended up being fair because she fought. Well, I mean, part, part of this is her location, part of it's being somewhat impoverished, certainly part of it's being a woman. Uh, and, a, and a lot of it is the time, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think like before, rural Ohio in the 40s or whatever. Right. But even in New York City in the 40s, I don't think anybody thought about fairness. I don't think fairness was a concept that got into our heads as a... Well, fairness as an extension of justice or even a component of justice, Mm -hmm. like there's justice Mm -hmm. and fairness is, I don't think what people were talking about until very recently. I think justice is, is so different from fairness that maybe it's unrelated Hmm. and we have, we have equated them because it's easy to do. I think it's, and I think it's like, it's a lazy aspect of our, of our current world. It's a bad analogy to say that, that justice, which is, um, you know, which is like, a, a a concept that is carved out of granite and fairness, which is made out of balloons and to say that they are that that even that fairness is a thing that is just justice light or justice for dummies <laughs> it's really not you know and justice is is something i mean uh justice is something that you have a sword in one hand and a scale in the other mm-hmm. and fairness is 
is a piece of cake on a paper plate. So, so watching, you know, watching my mom and realizing that I live in a, I live in a world where the language is very different from hers and very different from my dad's and very different from any of the people that I read about who lived before me Mm -hmm. and let alone people younger than me who have, who are way, way further out on the, on the fairness, uh, wing because it's been, because it's, it's a, it's a direction we've taken, you know, it's a, it's a conceptual direction we've taken in a lot of ways because justice is so hard to achieve. Justice is such a, Justice is, is often bloody mm-hmm. and it's hard to fo- it's hard to stay focused. It's hard to it's hard to not sag your shoulders and say, you know, well, in order to get to justice, let's back engineer it from fairness. Mm-hmm. And let's say, well, everybody got a everybody got a can of Fanta with their lunch, so that's fair, and so <laughs> that works toward justice. Mm-hmm. It's like it doesn't really. It's a you know the can of Fanta, um, like an equal portion of ketchup on everybody's tray, isn't um, isn't like. I, I really want you to be in charge of something, just <laughs> just because I just want to know what it, how it would turn out. I just I want to I want to I'm not, I'm not I'm not saying this in a provocative. <laughs> I would just like to watch you implement something because you're, you have such a, such a mind for this. And I would like, I would like you to run the simulation for a while. You think you'd like that maybe for a weekend? I don't know. I had a friend who runs a hotel text me the other day and she was like, do you think that you would be good at managing people? Have you ever managed people? Yikes. And I was like, it was so crazy because I, I, I thought about it I, because my of course initial reaction was like, well, sure. And then I thought about it. I was like, when was the last time you managed buddy? Not, not like being the leader of a band mm-hmm. where what, that's you know, really what you're more of a was, shepherd there. You're more of the titular goat. Yeah. I was just, I was juggling rats. <laughs> I think there's you know, a big difference. Rats. I also, I think there's a huge difference when people think of management and boss and all that kind of thing. I think people yeah. from the outside think of uh, push, pushing people around. Um, yeah. But there's a big difference to me between managing people and managing resources, for example. There are people who may not have the greatest, you know, people skills, but can be great resource managers. They might be really good at just making sure everybody uh, is scheduling the conference room uh, correctly. You know what I mean? It's it's yeah. just that what people are so attracted to, the oh, like, how soon do I get to push people around phase of my career? And I realized I don't – I have never managed people – I've never had a job where I was the the man. I was the assistant manager of the off-ramp grunge bar. Yeah. But it was an assistant managerial position that was 100% toothless. I was just, you know, (laughs) the owner was running a complete cult of personality and made me the assistant manager uh, (laughs) to just keep, um, to, to put a layer of insulation between him and the staff. But, when the staff came to me, all I could do was go to the owner and ask. And when the owner said oh, something, I all see. I could do is come tell the staff what to do. I mean, I had no. Right. I, I, I had I no a long time ago, I heard somebody say something along the lines of um, power is not the ability to say no, it's the ability to say yes. And it sounds right. like you're in that position there where you're mostly there to say no to people. 
Well, and you know, he said the owners one day said like, "Oh, everybody's been doing such a good job. You know, go uh, go out and give everybody like a shift drink, whatever they want." Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Hey, everybody, you know, come on, I'm going to give everybody a shift drink." And it was it was kind of my big moment as the assistant manager. I was going to get everybody a, a drink, and one of the one of the staff, I don't even remember what her job was, and she was actually the owner's pet. He like she was terrible at her job, but for some reason he had a what always felt like a very strange relationship with her. Hmm. Like maybe it was drug relationship mm. with her or some kind of blackmail situation. But she was like, Give me some Chambord. I wanna I wanna like gla- a glass of Chambord. Hmm. And I was like uh, sure. I mean, I was 22. I didn't know what anything was. I, I didn't. I didn't know what anything was. I poured <laughs> her a glass of Chambord, and then Lee Ray heard about it. And he was like, "That's expensive stuff." And I was like, "You said give everybody a shift drink. Like, how much does it cost? Five dollars at the time." Mm-hmm. And he was like, "You just, you know, what I meant was a well drink." And I was like, "Yeah, I mean, I need uh, that." Was that was the the extent of my managerial experience? And I realized I've never been a manager and I don't have any real idea how, what kind of a manager I would be. And I suspect maybe not a good one. Oh, I suspect what a horrible job. It's my nightmare. I'd be really bad at it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Where it's just like, I mean, what can you imagine managing 20 people? I've only ever formally uh, that wasn't even my employee. There was the guy who sold banner ads for our dot com, and my boss was like, "Can you can you deal with this guy?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure, whatever." But like, you know, I had stuff to do, and I had no interest in doing this. And it, it was like a week before my boss was like, "Did you know he's like running his like a, an eBay business out of here?" And I was like, "I did not. I don't like talking <laughs> to him. He's from Castro Valley, and he's very strange." And um, not the Kester neighborhood, but out in the East Bay. He's a very odd man. And it turned out, yeah, he was uh, he was really bad. He was terrible at his job. Uh, and, but well, it was a job that would be kind of difficult to be good at because this is the you know, the caveman age of selling advertising on the internet. But you know, it's kind of the punch the monkey era. But like, I was my boss was like, yeah, you you're not gonna do that anymore. I'm like, oh, I think that's probably a very good idea. I am really, I do not have the comportment. I don't have the brain for doing this and other people do which is interesting because as with salespeople, i think there are some people who are born to do sales and they could sell anything and i think there are people you know i can't prove this in every instance i think there are people who are born to manage and could manage anybody you know what i mean irrespective of the field the domain you just you if you understand what motivates people you could be you can be a good manager you can be but lacking that I'm a terrible judge of character and don't like human beings. I'm like probably the wrong person to to have to be uh, you know uh, looming over the banner ad guy. And I I'm afraid that I'm a I, that I would be a micromanager. That mm. I would be I would be telling people you know what to do, but then like my mom was with me, you mm-hmm. know, coming in and saying like, oh that was good, <laughs> but here you just needed to let me do just go it. stomp on your toys. Yeah, let me just stomp on your toys for a second. <laughs> 